0: Hello I'm Tony and I'm Patrick. Welcome to Cape to the Cross apologetics where we are working our way through the book Faith has its reasons and we have yeah worked our way through to uh chapter four So the first three chapters are really a really good introduction into uh, these four basic apologetic approaches that our authors, Uh, Ken Boa and Robert Bowman want us to be aware of. And so they do a really good job of giving some history and background and that sort of thing. And then beginning with chapter four, now we jump into the first of the four of these um, apologetic approaches. This one is the classical approach. And so they're spending the next three chapters then talking about uh the classical approach here. And so let's kind of jump into this and and uh see what they have to say. They they begin this chapter by saying that uh and they call it apologist who emphasize reason, right? So this is uh so you know, I, I'm not sure if that's derogatory, mean, no <laughs> nobody else does, right? They, they
1: emphasize but, it. They, right. it's not the only ones that uh, use okay. it.
0: Good, good. (laughs) Yeah. So they say that the classical apologetic tradition, as the um, term classical suggests, is the dominant approach to apologetics in church history, especially uh, prior to the modern period. It emphasizes the presentation of Christianity as rational, that is, as logically coherent and supported by sound arguments. And they tell us that it offers what its advocates consider proofs of various types, though especially philosophical proofs uh, for the existence of God as a first step in defending the truth claims of the uh, Christian faith. And so what we'll see here is this is what we have called a a two-step approach, right, Is, is where they're headed with this one.
1: Right. <clears throat> and so uh, our authors uh, uh, do always a good job of kind of uh, laying oh. down some good um, definitions, which is always appreciated on this show. And so uh, they say that uh, as they're using the terms in this book, classical apologetics also refers to an idealized type that is more or less fully exemplified in um apolo- in apologist in that tradition. Of necessity, then uh, they'll be using uh Offering generalizations that is what we say about apologetics of the idealized type of or approach is generally applicable to apologetics uh, to apologists in the classical tradition, but one must allow for considerable variations and exceptions so essentially. Here's kind of the general overview of what most classical apologists believe. Some might emphasize one point over the other point, but they would still hold in the same category of, of uh, traditional of, of classical apologetics. And so, you know, you kind of do this with history uh, because you can't say usually something starts at point A and you know, that's that's the start of the war or that's the start of this age. And so you kind of have to allow for variations uh, of, of ideas and people. Um, um, is the same thing when you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, reformed tradition and Calvin uh, Calvinism. Uh, yeah, you the know, 95
0: okay. theses, for instance, <laughs> right. that that was, you know, posted on the. Uh, on the door there that's that was the, the beginning yeah. that's right yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> on, on on halloween of that fateful day while they were trick-or-treating yes to, <laughs> so Sorry. so that's that's what they're saying here is is uh you know and and i think we started out the book by saying there are some people who lay in a camp that we might say well they seem to be more evidentialist than they are classical uh, or maybe they've even uh, termed themselves as uh classical but th- uh, they're put into the evidential so um our authors are are uh, at least um, acknowledging the, the fact that uh, they're trying to kind of codify uh, people for the sake of simplicity here. So on other qualification needs to be made is a distinct approach an explicit methodological, methodological stance. Uh, classical apologetics like the other three basic approaches discussed in the book is actually a modern development. So, mm. uh, you know, we, we can't reach back in time and say, uh, Jesus termed the the, uh, the term uh, classical apologetics to mean this. And so uh, we're coming at it from kind of what we mean in today's language. And so we're looking back and, and applying it to these people in history and saying, uh, while there is variation, they probably fit within this camp the most.
0: Right. Good, yeah. And so what they tell us then is in this chapter that they're going to examine the roots of classical apologetics, right? Kind of some historical uh, issues there. And then they'll consider briefly the thought of five modern classical apologists. And uh, they consider Norman Geisler uh, as the representative of perhaps the purest form of this approach to apologetics. And so they'll spend some time in in two of geisler's 60 some odd books that he's <laughs> <Right>.
1: written <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right well okay so uh, they launch into the historical roots of the classical apologetic approach and they say classical apologetics more than the other three systems discussed in this book draws on the apologetic thought of christian theologians and philosophers throughout church history okay maybe uh uh, they're going to make their case for this. Uh, we, we might not always agree with them, but uh, we're presenting the evidence that they're presenting here. Um, indeed, most advocates of the classical approach count it an important point in their favor that their approach is in line with major apologists from the early and medieval church.
0: Right. And so the classical apologists lay great emphasis on the examples of uh, apologetic arguments found, for instance, in the New Testament, especially Paul's apologetic speech in uh, Athens in Acts chapter 17, you'll recall that there are really two uh, places in the book of Acts where Paul preaches. We have a little bit of Paul's preaching to Gentiles. Usually he goes into the church and we have these various, you know, uh, uh, sections in scripture where he's talking to, to Jews in the church, or maybe a mixture of, you know, God lovers and Jews and that sort of thing. But in Acts chapter 14 there's a just a real brief snippet of some of the things that he says to uh, uh, Gentiles. And in Acts 17 obviously is that large right. portion where he deals with you know Greek philosophy and right. and uh, <laughs> you know in the Mars Hills, the Areopagus and, and that sort of thing. And so classical apologists lay great emphasis on that as an example. Uh, In terms of how to do apologetics. Uh, The elements of the classical method then were really developed by um, apologists of the second century, most notably Justin Martyr, and certain aspects of the apologetic thought of even Augustine continued this classical tradition. Uh, He made use of philosophical proofs for God's existence, especially, but not exclusively uh, in his earlier writings, that is, uh, Augustine. And so to prove that this God had revealed himself in in Christ, for instance, Augustine uh, cited miracles and fulfilled biblical prophecy and emphasized the dramatic growth and triumph of the church through centuries of persecution and suppression right and we'll talk a little bit more about that as right. we go but that's that was kind of augustine's approach here
1: right so again think back to the classical argument is that kind of two-step approach is, uh kind of proving a general uh a deistic uh or a, a theistic god uh and then um moving uh to step two for a uh a, a focus on jesus being the exemplification of who that god is and so uh we'll we'll kind of see that uh, come up here uh, again uh, throughout uh, church history in in this method. What is in the medieval period though that the classical approach began to receive systematic formulation. Anselm offered his ontological argument for the existence of God, both to edify believers and to challenge and persuade unbelievers. So he brought in both camps here. Anselm was careful to add that in the end, faith was to be placed in God and in his revelation scripture, not in, the argument not in his argument still his approach was quite rationally oriented so he he uh, formulated rationalistically but his emphasis was but we definitely need to turn to scripture to god and and place our, our faith in that as as far as what true justified belief uh would look like right
0: right And also, during this period, um, uh, Thomas Aquinas developed a number of philosophical arguments for the existence of God and expounded Christian teaching on the nature of God in uh, Aristotelian philosophical categories. You recall that Aristotle and many of the Greek philosophers and their writings were rediscovered uh, uh, just briefly before this period, and so uh, Aquinas jumps into Greek philosophy rather heavily. And he uses that as uh, to help him help him with his uh, apologetic method. And so uh, we can say that really, and our book, our book will see later on, um, Geisler, who is their ideal classical apologist, uh, relies heavily on an atomistic uh, approach. So Thomas rejected Anselm's ontological argument. He preferred various forms of the cosmological argument. And he has a brief piece in his writings on um, the five proofs, which I think we've we've uh, talked about um, uh, uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. Also, Thomas was uh, very careful to say that such uh, philosophical proofs, notice, were not the basis of faith or a substitute for faith. So he follows Anselm in this kind of, you know, the arguments aren't the end all and be all why we believe in God. According to Thomas, those who rely on philosophical arguments alone will never have an adequate knowledge
1: of God. So while many of reformers in the first generation of the Protestant Reformation rejected or denigrated classical apologetic arguments, not all of them did. A Philip Melanchthon in particular was his in his later years, more appreciative of classical apologetics than Martin Luther had been and presented arguments in the Thomistic fashion. When deism and other forms of skepticism arose in the 17th century, Protestants typically answered with arguments rooted in the classical apologetics of Anselm and Aquinas. So natural theology, the construction of arguments, defending or approving a theistic worldview on the basis of rational considerations apart from divine revelation, became a regular part of Christian apologetics. Uh, and so uh, we we still get this today. Uh, it's it's heavily formulated uh, a lot. Uh, I think in um, in in Catholic argumentation, especially in in Catholic political thought as well. Um, uh, um, uh, 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 Clarence Thomas uh, is, is is probably kind of um, maybe most known or or he his confirmation was heavily emphasized um, this idea of the threat of natural theology uh, informing his uh, judicial uh, experience and and, and determination uh, but we see uh, um, um, kind of the um, uh, mid uh, 20th century, uh, discussions on abortion uh having uh natural theology um implemented uh into it as well so uh if if uh natural theology kind of rings a a a, a, a kind of uh in your memory but you're not quite sure where to put it uh that might be um uh, something within kind of pop culture history that uh that might uh, jog your memory there. Right, right
0: so it's basically the approach where you look at nature and use nature and reason to try to get your get uh you know, get yourself to the existence of God kind right. of thing.
1: And, and, and that's trying to create that, that platform where you, you and the unbeliever can stand on by saying, you know, we're both a part of nature. We both can experience nature. We both see nature. Uh, we, we smell nature, all, all of our senses, right. uh, are natural And so what, what can we devise together where we can convince each other on this platform, uh, where, where we're, looking out or, or uh, r- rather than inward or upward. Yeah, yeah,
0: uh, and then in the 19th century, the classical theistic proofs were endorsed and utilized by a wide variety of Christian theologians and apologists, including uh, Charles Hodge, whose uh, three-volume systematic theology was probably the most influential work of its kind published in the 19th century. Right? He was a Princeton theologian, and uh, we'll see later that B.B. Warfield followed Hodge uh, in in this uh, in this approach. Okay, so now the rest of the chapter, uh, our authors want to examine in some detail the apologetic contributions of four modern apologists uh, in this particular classical tradition.
1: Right. So we start with uh, one of the giants of of, uh, kind of early 20th century church history, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield and he uh existed from 1851 to 1921 so uh putting it, it on that cusp of uh you know uh, reconstruction into uh um you know that early um uh, 20th century um time period uh, a lot of change especially in uh, the american church uh the inclusion of neo-orthodoxy uh, uh, kind of taking a forefront and then the response to that a uh, warfield being being part of the the, the princeton boys that uh, came in, and wrote uh, uh, the the um, I- ideas of kind of what what are the what are the fundamentals to believe on uh, to, to, to be can- considered a Christian and that's where we get the, the idea of uh, fundamentalism and then later it became uh, the pejorative for it but he was a professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1871 until the end of his life, and he was the last and arguably most brilliant representative of so-called Princeton School of theology and apologetics. And again, uh, you know, pick up a, a little book uh, of of his and read it, and you'll see the footnotes. And if it's scholarly work, there's a lot of scripture references. And if it's a, a scripture uh, book, you're going to find a lot of scholarly references. Um, his his uh, his um, idea of of writing and from a from a scholarly perspective, uh, doesn't divorce one from the other. And so, uh, this idea that uh, Christians are unthinking people, uh, Warfield is uh, an example to us uh, as as to uh, how to how to um, not just flavor our our thoughts with Scripture, but to uh, actually live them out.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, eventually Princeton fell to uh, modernism and naturalism, but that was uh, during the time of Warfield, that's really what he was fighting against. His primary concern uh, with regard to apologetics was to uphold the supernatural character of Christianity. Right. This meant arguing, first of all, that unless Jesus was a supernatural person, specifically truly God incarnate, and unless he rose supernaturally from the grave, Christianity is simply not true. And thus for Warfield, a great deal of apologetics was simply explaining why Christianity could not be affirmed or accepted without the supernatural. So he was, you know, he was fighting against this, uh, uh, encroaching naturalism that eventually um, yeah, took over Princeton Theological Seminary and School.
1: Yeah, yeah, and th- that argumentation ki- kind of is picked up. Uh, uh, I don't know if uh, directly uh, by C.S. Lewis with his uh, li- uh, lunatic liar or Lord um, uh, ideas as well. So uh, we'll we'll see that uh, here later a little bit uh, uh, soon. Well, part of Warfield's agenda for reclaiming supernatural Christianity as the only true Christian religion was to show that it is what the christian church had always believed and its best theologians had always taught right it's it's not uh just a, a suddenly popped up and we can shirk everything and say well you know it, it's it's a way to socially influence and guide the the culture that you're in well that's what neo orthodoxy tried to do and that's what liberalism tried to to do was was to ride the coattails of what what um warfield is is putting forth is no no, no th- this can't be divorced from the 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 influence of on the culture uh, it has to be derived from the supernatural source so according to warfield the science of the uh, of theology takes as its primary data the facts of scripture but the theology to be properly grounded we must know that the bible is indeed inspired scripture from god ultimately this means that the first principles of theology must be established to establish the fact of god's existence so that's primary number one and from there we can move forward and say Um, um, how can it be influenced and that might be kind of step five in this and in (laughs) what he's considering of this this process
0: right and so really we see then in warfield this two-step method of defending the christian faith first one establishes the truth of god's existence right so god exists and the possibility of knowing god and then secondly one shows from the evidence that God is known in his revelation in Christ and in scripture. So there's a two-step approach, right? You argue for God's existence, right? Okay, God exists. And now the God that we're talking about is really the Christian God that's revealed in Christ and in scriptures. And so Warfield advocated for this kind of two-step methodology when he was defending the Christian faith.
1: Yeah, and uh, the the book does go into critiques of, of these methods as well. But it is also here to point that, uh, Warfield doesn't have a general view of God in mind. He, he has a biblical Christian God in mind when he's arguing that first point. And so for us who are presuppositionalists, we, we kind of take a little bit of umbrage to that because it's not like you're defending, uh, a, a general form of theism here, you, you do have in mind certain constraints on the God who you're putting forth in that, in that first step. And where are you getting that from? You're getting those from scripture. And so uh, that's just a a, a little uh, rabbit trail to to point out uh, here as far as uh, a step one in uh, Warfield's process. Well, for Warfield apologetics is essentially a theological discipline. Indeed, it occupies a primary place in the theological uh, curriculum. It was an inestimably important task of establishing the fundamental truths and principles on which Christian theology rests. In this sense, it might be described as the pre theological discipline, but in a broader sense, Warfield regarded as the first of the disciplines of the theological disciplines there.
0: Good, yeah. All right, so that's Warfield and we see this kind of two-step process here and he was really uh, pushing theology really. I mean, this is what he was after here, but um, next our book uh, moves to C.S. Lewis, Clive Staple Lewis, uh, 1898 to 1963, Uh, He was known to his friends as Jack, go figure, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And was almost without doubt, our book tells us, the most popular Christian apologist internationally in the 20th century. He was a British scholar of medieval literature who converted to Christianity in midlife, and Lewis did not develop a specific apologetic system, but approached the claims of Christianity actually from several uh, directions, as we'll see here. Right.
1: Right. And if you've only read uh, Lewis for his Narnia books, I mean, congratulations; those are a good <laughs> places to start. Uh, but he's written a lot more, and uh, his his work uh, uh, as a scholar outside of Christianity is is uh, uh, pretty impressive as well. Uh, if you uh, uh, are looking kind of for more, uh, I did a book review on uh, uh, the subject of the Inklings, which was a group that him and like Tolkien were a part of. Uh, and and uh, it, it it's really interesting, kind of what that group it's kind of like a discussion did. group, like yeah, right? yeah. yeah. yeah it, was, it was it was kind of the first uh, a podcast group <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah. Met in a pub. Uh, they were they were really selective with who who was who was allowed in, and uh, they critiqued people uh, um, uh, among friends. And so you, you kind of had to 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 get the, the the nod, and then you had to take your lickins a little bit. <laughs> Well, having converted from atheism to Christianity, he didn't always start out as a Christian. He, he was clearly an atheist uh, by his, by his own writings. Um, and then he moved to Christianity. Uh, he gave much attention to refuting the philosophical objections to the Christian faith that bothered him as an atheist. Lewis's best known apologetic work, mere Christianity was really a combination of three books, the case for Christianity, Christian behavior and beyond personality. In it, he refuted atheism, naturalism, and dualism, and presented a case for the unique claims of Christ. Lewis' apologetic efforts, unlike those of many in the classical tradition, were not limited to rational arguments, but adopted a variety of genres reflecting his literary flair. And, uh, you know, Mere Christianity is still read today because, I think, of the writing. I I, I think it, it mirrors that rationally uh, as well. But, but the, the way Lewis writes as prose is just, it's it's just a, a fun read. If, if anything, you might disagree yeah. with it, but it's, it is well-written. It, it yeah. you know, you, you don't have to say, okay, a then, then B and then B then C. Okay. You, you know, you're not reading kind of this philosophical, um, uh, uh you know, uh, undertaking you're writing kind of a, a very personal, uh, uh, uh prescription of uh, the Christian faith that he presents.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so our authors tell us that Lewis's approach to apologetics really defies uh, simple characterization precisely because of the diverse way, you know, in which he sought to display and defend the truth of mere Christianity. However, they tell us that uh, they agree with Geisler and uh, David Clark, both of whom were, classified Lewis as a classical apologetics. So when dealing with outright atheism, Lewis generally offered philosophical arguments for belief in God in preparation for presenting the case for Christianity. So notice you have this kind of two-step approach again, right? General philosophical arguments to show that God exists, and then to show that the God that exists is the Christian God, right? And so uh, though it was wasn't specific arguments uh, that most classical apologists prefer lewis had his own arguments but still he kind of followed this kind of two-step process All Right. so we will see you next time
1: see you next time